Hey, everyone. Hi. It's us. It's Kate and Dory. Yep. Here with a little bit of a special replay episode of our interview with Madeline Albright. Yeah, we, you know, we were really sad to hear the news today that she had died. And she made such an impact on us when we interviewed her in April 2020. So just, you know, a month into the pandemic, she was so warm and gracious and funny and her fax machine kept going off. And it was just, you know, I don't know, it was a real dream come true to get to talk to her. And we just wanted to buckets. (laughs) We just, I mean, imagine if we had done it, we were originally supposed to do it in person. I would have not made it. I would have perspired through my clothing. (laughs) Yeah. She was supposed to come to LA for a book event. And then, you know, because of the pandemic, it got moved to online. Um, Anyway, we really enjoyed our interview with her and we just kind of wanted to honor her memory by re-airing it. So here it is. Our guest today is Madeline Albright. Um, You may know her as the former Secretary of State, uh, but she is also a professor, author, diplomat, and businesswoman. In 1997, she was named the first female Secretary of State and became, at that time, the highest ranking woman in the history of U.S. government. From 1993 to 1997, Dr. Albright served as the U.S. permanent representative to the United Nations and was a member of the president's cabinet. She is a professor in the practice of diplomacy at the Georgetown University School of Foreign Service. Dr. Albright is chair of Albright Stonebridge Group, a global strategy firm and chair of Albright Capital Management, LLC, an investment advisory firm focused on emerging markets. She also chairs the National Democratic Institute, serves as the president of the Truman Scholarship Foundation, and is a member of the U.S. Defense Department's Defense Policy Board. And in 2012, she was chosen by President Obama to receive the nation's highest civilian honor, the Presidential Medal of Freedom, in recognition of her contributions to international peace and democracy. You are definitely the most accomplished guest we've ever had on Forever 35. Very happy to have you. Thank you very much. Thanks for the nice introduction. Yeah. Um, And by the way, I'm Dory, and um, this is my co-host, Kate. Hi there. Hello. Hello. Um, Dory, can we start with my my first question that I had? We may. Okay. So, Secretary Albright, in the preface of your book, um, I love how you describe what's next as a favorite question to ask yourself and one that you asked as you ended your tenure as Secretary of State. And you also wrote in the first chapter, um, and I should we should specify your new book is Hell and Other Destinations. And that is the wonderful book I'm referring to. Yes. Um, you said that you intended on making the stage of your life after being Secretary of State even more interesting than your last and that you said hell yes to everything. And we'd love to know what advice you have for women who feel like it's too late for them to try something new they're too scared to take a risk or forge a new path, whether it be personal or professional? Well, I actually think it's never too late. Um, And I frankly trying to prove that. But basically, I do think that women um, can and should see their life coming in segments, some of it um, due to biology uh, and kind of dividing things up and that women can do everything. It just doesn't have to all be at the same time. And I do think that we are very hard on each other and very hard on ourselves. And so um, I'm trying to show that you, I've had moments like that, but that I decided that 
Uh, I would always be curious uh, and that I would uh, make a difference. That uh, is something that I wanted to do and that I would uh, not be afraid to try new things. That kind of reminds me of what you wrote about in your memoirs about the end of your marriage. Um, And in this book, you write something that really struck a chord with both of us, which is the word I began to assume a deeper, richer shape. Can you speak about this experience, especially for listeners who may be experiencing the end of a marriage or relationship? Well, it's interesting because um, it's something that became very clear all of a sudden that everything that I'd been doing was we. Um, Mm. I um, had gone to college. I got uh, very, uh, you know, one of the things that I've talked about in my book and also was that having gone to a women's college and we had a um, commencement speaker, the secretary of defense at the time, because his daughter was in our class. And we kind of remember his uh, commencement speech slightly differently in words, but the gist was your main responsibility is to get married and raise children. Um, and so I waited a long time to get married three days after graduation. Um, and I had been we for a long time because I'd been, um, there was this term in those days pinned, uh, for, by my husband who, or my about to be husband as a fraternity pin and then engaged. And I started the we business a very long time in terms of always thinking of decisions about, uh, how we would do things and, um, what we ate and what we did. And all of a sudden, uh, I was an I, and uh, it was strange because basically it seemed very self-centered, but it was important to begin to think of what I needed to do in order to move forward and um, be a good mother. So um, I all of a sudden, I, I, and uh, it makes a difference. And I think that this probably happens to many women is to think about what you want to do uh, in terms of your um uh does not i mean your your vocation or your thoughts or your desires to make a difference or any number of reasons and that we can be eyes uh and it is something that is not bad to be it's essential actually in many ways you do write a lot about friendship um in your book and it's also a topic that comes up on our show and i guess we're wondering like you know, you, you've had this one best friend, um, from the time you were in college, I guess two best friends. Um, and how do you maintain those friendships and how do you cut ties with toxic friends? Well, I tell you, I mean, one especially, um, Winnie Freund was somebody that it turns out we had even gone to grade school together. Um, and we, uh, kind of reacquainted ourselves with each other at Wellesley because we were sitting next to each other in class. And then we have been friends ever since because of um, not just where we lived near each other, because for a certain stage we did, uh, but mainly because we have a lot in common. We uh, try to help each other. And it's just an incredible relationship. And we have stayed in touch um, either by doing things together. And um, I've, I talked in my book about doing something at Wellesley, which is uh, an institute that uh, Winnie helped me, it continues to help me with, but we travel together, but we also talk on the phone uh, and share a lot of thoughts very quickly. And it does require, I think friendship um, doesn't just happen automatically. It needs something where you care about it and you, uh, and you really do 
cherish it in a way that that you uh, reach out and you're happy to be reached out to, frankly. How do you deal with with toxic friends? Have you ever had to cut ties with people or or end a relationship that wasn't working for you as a friendship? Um, well, there are people that it becomes very clear <clears throat> that uh, they really only want to be friends at a particular time in your life when uh, they can use the friendship. And so you just kind of uh, um, are very uh, quick in phone calls or just decide that um, I don't think I've ever kind of said to somebody, I don't want to be friends with you anymore. It's just something um, that happens by virtue of being the opposite of not staying in touch and thinking that it's not worth reaching out. Um, And so it, uh, but I haven't done it very often uh, because one of the things in my life uh, when you do have to spend a lot of time with people that, um, are part of your life in terms of uh, whether it's on a board or in business or or whatever. And so, um, not every there's a difference between an acquaintance and a friend. Um, and there's certainly I've got an awful lot of acquaintances, and I do truly do believe in friendship and the importance of those relationships. My whole life, in many ways, is based on relationships. And one of the issues at this moment, I have to tell you. I'm an extrovert. I really love being with people and I'm trying to learn to be an introvert, not doing very well. Uh, but I have spent a lot of time zooming, uh, and talking on the phone and, uh, doing various ways to, uh, connect in uh, what I would say is a modern or, or a way, you know, techie. That's interesting. You mentioned that because the, the pandemic, I, I'm also a, an extrovert and it really is challenging not getting to make contact with people and it kind of zaps something in your soul. The part that's weird, and I don't know <clears throat> whether you have this experience, I have been doing a lot of Zooming uh, and I teach via Zoom and you can actually see the people, but you don't get what an extrovert needs are the vibes, you know, and the energy that you get from being with people. So uh, it, it's an act of will, I think. And one of the things that I've learned, um, and, and in my book, I really did make some comparisons about, uh, or talk about what it was like to be a child during World War II in England. Uh, and I was just a little girl, but, uh, I now think about what my parents did, which was they had no control over whether the Germans were bombing. The only thing they had control over was their mood. And I think now we don't have any control over the virus. The only thing that we have control over is our mood. So that's what I work on. We were thinking about um, the pandemic with regards to your routine, because you describe in your book that you have this very dedicated exercise routine where you get up very early and you've been doing this for 20 years and you go on to describe your affinity for routine. Um, and We'd like to know what, why do you find consistency like this enhances your well-being and has having this routine helped during the global pandemic or has it been kind of disorienting to not be able to follow your regular routine? Well, what is interesting is um, I found this wonderful trainer and I have spent a lot of time with her in a routine, Margot Carper. And so uh, it is has been part of my routine. We are not doing that now. I have been trying, I, in fact, I just got off the treadmill, 
and I have been trying to do a variety of exercises, but um, I'm not as good at it as I should be. But I do know it's essential, and especially given uh, my age and what's going on. So I'm trying, but I'm not as good about it. And routines really do help. You you share this story, I think it's at the beginning of your book, and it's just a very quick anecdote, but I highlighted it and circled it with like three exclamation points. And you share this story about a woman who told you that you were, quote, brave for not getting a facelift. Um, and you you share a, you share a hilarious retort, which was <laughs> that you wanted to say to her that she was brave for going out with whatever surgical work she had done, which really made me chuckle. But could you could you kind of speak to the unwinnable standards of beauty that get placed upon women, especially women who are in the public eye? I, I have to say that one of the reasons I told that story and others is that I think often what happens is people are trying to say something nice and it doesn't come out that way. So there are times when I've been with somebody who says, you remind me of my grandmother. She's 106 or whatever. Um, but this particular story was by somebody um, in a uh, where people had actually had a lot of work on their faces. And so at a cocktail party, she looked at me and said, you're um, really brave not to have had a facelift. Uh, and, um, and I thought, hmm, I actually didn't know what to say right off uh, the bat. Um, and it was only later that I thought of kind of ret uh, rhetorical ways of answering it because I was so taken aback that somebody would say that. I do think that uh, we do put an awful lot of emphasis on how people look and looking young when um, you're way past that. Um, and I think that one of the things, if if one can see some good to what is going on now, is I think that people are thinking about their relationships with people, what's really important to them, um, whether having wrinkles uh, when you're socially distancing doesn't seem to make much difference, or um, you know, dealing with a terrible um, uh, virus. Um, and, and I think that I have a very strange thing to say. I was just watching television with a lot of um, nurses and people who have been on the front lines and how brave they are. And they, there were a lot of pictures of them without their masks on. And they all have new lines on their face, which is from the masks. And I think it will be a, a sign of honor that people that uh, have given so much to us. Um, so it was just a thought I had that this was a wrinkle that was very well earned. Mm -hmm. That's really powerful. Um, you mentioned being on the treadmill, um, but I'm, I'm wondering what some of your other kind of everyday self-care routines or practices are. Well, um, I uh, uh, don't have a lot. I mean, I do um, fix my face and put some cream on and things. Uh, I try very hard to uh, look decent. I, and one of the routines, frankly, I, one of the things that, that had never occurred to me was that I would ever care about my clothes. But when I went to the United Nations, uh, Jean Kirkpatrick, who had uh, preceded me there, and we got to be friends, and she said, Madeline, you have to get rid of your clothes and go buy some new clothes, which was a great uh, uh, suggestion and an excuse. And so I do like to get dressed up, and I like to uh, 
think about what I'm wearing. And, and I think that, uh, what I miss now is I don't have to do that, but I have decided that I am going to look decent every day and that it does make a mm. difference in terms of how you feel about yourself. And then, of course, I have this whole thing with my pins. And so that gives me uh, some fun in thinking about what I'm going to wear or do. Yeah, your pins have been, I mean, an incredible topic for your your whole professional career. And I was wondering, is do you consider that part of kind of your self-care practice in terms of making the choice of which pin to wear or what kind of message you want to send with each pin or even just just the act, the recurring act of doing it? Well, it has gotten to be that way. So um, I think the part that um, um, I don't know whether you know the whole story, but what really did happen, I do like jewelry and I get to the United Nations and I was what's known as an instructed ambassador. And the problem was that after the Gulf War, the ceasefire was translated into a series of sanctions resolutions, and my instructions were to make sure the sanctions stayed on. And so I said <clears throat> terrible things about Saddam Hussein all the time, which he deserved because he'd invaded Kuwait. And all of a sudden, there was a poem in the papers in Baghdad comparing me to many things, but among them an unparalleled serpent. So I had a snake pin, and I wore it when we talked about Iraq. and so. Then all of a sudden, um, it kind of got to be fun in thinking uh, that uh, I would wear pins in order to signal <clears throat> what I thought we were going to do on any given day. So on good days, I wore flowers and butterflies and balloons. And on bad days, a lot of carnivorous animals and spiders and things. And so then what happened was that people got very used to seeing me with pins. <clears throat> now what has happened is when I don't wear a pin, like when I'm exercising, for instance, um, people say, why aren't you wearing a pin? And so it has gotten to be much more of a, a game of choosing what I'm going to wear uh, when. And um, and then uh, I have, uh, there's a pin collection of everything, which have the foreign policy stories, but that's uh, has been traveling around the United States. So I had to start all over. Uh, and so I, I do have fun in terms of figuring out what I'm going to wear. And it's somewhat embarrassing to think that I actually spend time thinking about what am I going to say today with my pins. I think it's pretty awesome. Honestly, I don't think it's embarrassing at all. I think it's it's such a it, fashion is so fun, but there's also so many important messages that can come out of it. I think it's really brilliant. Well, I turned it into a diplomatic tool. and. Um, have a lot of funny stories with that. And, but the thing that is really funny now is what I love, given the extrovert thing, uh, when people come up to me, whether when we used to go to airports and, uh, or out in public and say, why are you wearing that pin today? And so it has become kind of a, a conversation opener, which, uh, I appreciate. Do you have one on right at this moment? Well, I have a pin, which is, um, that I've chosen uh, for talking about the book. And that is that uh, it is since I have done some comparisons to World War II uh, and my father was on BBC. I, when I was a little girl, I listened to BBC during the war and they would start with Beethoven's fifth uh, and which they would go da 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 dum, which in Morse code is victory. Mm. And I have been wearing a V pin. Uh, throughout the, the book tour. 
Um, I was when I was thinking about what I was going to wear before the whole victory thing came up and the virus, because I don't write about the virus, but since it's now a major subject, I was going to wear a devil pin uh, that went with the hell theme. But uh, the V for victory uh, against the virus is what I'm doing now. Oh, I love that. Um, you, you've given dozens of commencement speeches over the years. And this year, it looks like most commencements will be canceled or at least like very scaled down. And so we were just kind of wondering, like, what would you like to tell the class of 2020 um, if you were going to be giving a commencement speech now? Yeah. Well, first of all, I have to say that I, I wouldn't say this to them, but I feel badly for them because commencements are fun and great and it's something you look forward to and so this class is never going to forget that they didn't that they weren't able to have that commencement but i would say something to them which is that they better than uh most uh, generations are prepared to deal with something very new that they are uh very uh competent more than competent in dealing uh with technology uh, they know how to, you know, we've made kind of fun of them for being online all the time or not being social or not caring about privacy, but they are ahead of things. And I have loved teaching uh, that I've done recently by Zoom. And I was stunned at how creative um, the students were. I also am one of the hard parts about any commencement speech is how you lay a lot of uh, responsibilities on the graduating class. But in many ways, they are the ones that are going to make the difference in the 21st century uh, because of their knowledge and their capabilities. And, and I would say to them that democracy is not a spectator sport, that they do have to contribute and be a part of things, um, which I think they have been. And they need to be known that uh, people my age uh, learn from them. I have the... Uh, the older I get, you know, obviously the younger are my teachers, which is something that Robert Frost said. So uh, I do think that I would be very positive, uh, but I would lay responsibilities on them because they are going to have to live in a totally different world from uh, where we have been. I wanted to ask you about a moment you share in your book in which you discover your maternal grandmother's journals. Um, it's incredibly moving and you then go on to share her writing at the at the end of the book which is just a such a poignant i have chills actually talking about it now it's such a poignant way to to end to end this book um could you speak about that a little bit and, and what it was like for you to discover her writing um and it was fa fairly recently that this that this happened well i'll tell you i mean it, it's part of a of a longer discovery issue um, I, when I became, uh, ambassador of the United Nations, I started getting letters from a lot of people, uh, saying that, um, with, where the facts were all wrong, but saying that they were relatives, um, and, uh, they needed a visa or, uh, money, uh, but they had the villages that my family came from wrong and the age and somebody who wrote said they'd gone to high school with my father in 1915, which would have been impossible since he was born in 1909. So I ignored a lot of the letters. And just as I was um, being vetted to be secretary of state, I got a letter from somebody that had all the um, facts right. 
um, and said what had been hinted in some of the other letters <clears throat> that uh, my uh, that I was of Jewish origin. And so <clears throat> what happened was that I then uh, I had just become Secretary of State, and uh, it was very there was somebody who wrote um, a an article about me and my Jewish background, and so. That was actually a, a revelation to me. Um, and I had known after the war when we came back, because I had my parents had my father was with the government in exile in London. Uh, and we came back. And for me, I had uh, have pictures of myself with my grandmother, but I was two years old and I certainly didn't remember her. And I kind of don't even remember asking. But I think later, I when we talked about other People had grandparents that I didn't have grandparents because they had been old and they had died. So uh, what happened was when uh, we when I lived in Washington, my father died. My mother came to live here and she brought a lot of his stuff. And then she died and all the papers and stuff were transferred to me and they were in my garage and in my basement. And then I uh, become an official that has to have security. And so the security people moved into my garage and we moved all these papers to a, a, a storage unit. So in like 2015, 2016, I was there looking just generally through things. And all of a sudden in a worn out envelope, I found this journal and it was written in Czech. Um, and it was from my grandmother to my mother who was in London and it was describing uh, what she was going through in this small town in Czechoslovakia, um, in terms of her daily life when, um, she wrote, there's one passage where she said, all of a sudden we've been divided into Aryans and non-Aryans and various, uh, uh, ways that Jews weren't able to go to, to other parts of the town or go shopping. But most of it was very kind of, uh, it starts out with her saying, that she wanted to let my mother know what kinds of things were going on at the time uh, where she was. And a lot of it is just, uh, in some ways, I describe it in the book as a, as a message in a bottle. Uh, and uh, it really, it was fascinating. I couldn't believe it, frankly, as I was reading it, in terms of her descriptions of what went on. Um, and, and it ends, the reason I wanted it in the, in the book is because it is a message in a bottle and it is one generation talking to another um, and uh, sharing uh, not only experiences, but a kind of hope that I think is very important. The part that really blew my mind was that she was not old when she was taken to a concentration camp. She was 54 years old. Um, and so... Uh, I have spent time trying to put the story together of what happened to a large number of my relatives. And not long ago with my children and grandchildren, we went to this concentration camp in, in the Czech Republic, Terezin, where we dedicated a, pack, a plaque to the 26 members of my family that died in the Holocaust. Wow. That is, that must have been incredibly moving. Um, well, the whole, and, and finding this, this diary, this journal, um, has been, um, uh, a very concrete sign of things, 
uh, of learning things about one's past, but the message in the bottle part and, and the hope, you know, uh, when we see each other or, or if we don't, so that you know what I've done. Um, and, uh, and they're, the part that's hard is there are a lot of little references to me. Um, mm, yeah. I must be a very cute little girl or whatever, but and anyway, uh, very, very moving. Well, I, I love that because you do talk about divine spark and why um, gratitude is a reason for for prayer, you believe. Um, could you tell us a little bit about, more about divine spark and also just what gives gives you hope? Well, I, I do think that, you know, I, I uh, kind of kid about this, that I was raised a Catholic, married an Episcopalian and found out I was Jewish. And so I can have my interreligious discussions. Um, but I really do think that uh, it is uh, important to understand uh, what we're supposed to be doing on earth and the divine spark and and having a reason for doing things in terms of making sure that others are taken care of and that there is community um, in understanding uh, what we are supposed to be doing and and having a goal and and having a sense that um, we aren't here just as an accident that uh, mm. are expected to play active roles. Well, that seems like a really nice note to end on. It was such a pleasure getting to talk to you. And your book is Hell and Other Destinations, and it is available now. And Kate and I both loved it. So everyone should read it. <laughs> 